Daniel 6, 1 through 28. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps begin trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption insomuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication to his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will deliver him will deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn, and at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, 
servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me insomuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king. I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Psalm 121 begins with the words, I lift my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who makes the heavens and the earth. Theories abound as to what the psalmist is talking about, but by far two of the most plausible and popular theories are these. In the ancient world, high places like mountains were considered especially sacred, and they were the places one might go to worship idols or foreign gods or to meet with Yahweh, the living God. And so the psalmist is, in this psalm, considering the options that the world has to offer. And he comes to the conclusion that the help is only truly available through the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. The other theory is that the mountain represents an obstacle that appears insurmountable, such as an obstacle like physical health, or emotional like depression or grief, or relational like conflict with another person or with God, or even political. But again, the psalmist concludes that despite the mountain, the Lord is the trustworthy one who made heaven and earth. He is the one we can count on. And I love that psalm because it gets to the fundamental human question of, who, in the end, can I really count on? Who can I trust to tell me the truth? Who will love me no matter what? And maybe ultimately, who can actually save me? In this season of pandemic and racial tension and political divisiveness and all of the other things going on, there is this fundamental anxiety in human beings that is raising its ugly head. Whether we know it or not, we are always seeking for the person or the leader or the political philosophy or the thing that will save us. And today we're going to be exploring a very familiar passage, Daniel chapter 6 best known because it is the chapter that contains the story of Daniel and the pit of lions. The story is set during Israel's exile in the land of Babylon, which is 
at this time of Daniel 6, ruled by the Persian king Cyrus. The story was originally intended to encourage these exiles that even though they were in exile due to their rebellion against God, that God had not forsaken them, he had not forgotten them, and he would not abandon them. But the story is not just for the Israelite exiles. As we discussed in weeks past, it was also for the Babylonians and the Persians. It is intentionally, at least the first chapters 2 through 7, intentionally written in Aramaic, which is the court language of Babylon and the ancient Near East. And because because of that, we know that God is gracious and he wants to reveal himself to the captor as well as to the captives. On top of all of that, the story has endured time and encouraged Jews under the, the Greek oppression and then the Roman oppression and then Christians under all forms of persecution and exile. Now, usually I work through a biblical text and only at the end do I sort of reveal what I think is the big idea of the passage. But today I just want to state the case right up front. I believe Daniel 6 is primarily addressing the universal human audience and our common question in life. Who can I count on? Who will never leave me or forsake me? Who can truly save me? And I think that this text gives one answer in two different forms. In the negative form, the answer is not human power not human institutions, not human nature in its fallen state. Human things will ultimately fail. Humans cannot ultimately save. But in its positive form, the question, whom can I count on? Well, Daniel 6 wants to tell us it's the living God. He is faithful, he is able, and he alone will save. My task now is to sort of be a tour guide as we walk through this amazingly complex and beautiful passage. And along the way, I'll stop um, to kind of share some of the background and draw out some of the meaning of the text. And for that, we better pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word uh, of life that you've given us. Thank you for um, your servants over the years who have um, written this down and copied it over time. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the one who continues to teach us and to open up the truth and reality of your living word. Do so now for us as we sit under your word and seek to learn and obey. Amen. Well, the first five verses of this passage set the stage for us, and we learn that a certain Darius the Mede is governing Babylon. And at this time, from the very outset, we have a historical issue to deal with. Cyrus was the king of Persia, and he had just conquered Babylon. So who then is this Darius the Mede? This is definitely something we can discuss in the Q&A time if you really want to get into historicity and all of this kind of stuff. I think it's really interesting. But just know that it's a bit of a mystery. One plausible answer is that Darius the Mede is just the throne name of Cyrus himself. And I'll just state three little pieces of evidence that might point toward that being um the plausible answer here. Historical documents show that other ancient kings used alternate names when they first took the throne of conquered lands. 
And so Cyrus was actually a Persian on his father's side, but his mother was a Mede. Um, and so it's plausible then that for his throne name or ascension name, when he came to power in this new place, that he used a throne name, Darius the Mede. Furthermore, Cyrus was in his early 60s when he conquered Babylon. And in chapter 5, verse 32, we read that Darius the Mede was about 62 when he began to rule Babylon. So those things kind of line up. Finally, in verse 28 of chapter 6, many scholars translate that sentence as, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, that is, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so there's a, a marriage there of those two names being one and the same person. Maybe one day we'll get more archaeological information to help us solve this mystery with more certainty. But in the end, the story carries the same meaning, even if we can't say for sure who this Darius the Mede was. What we do know is that Darius had a difficult task ahead of him. He instantly became the leader of the former Babylonian Empire, and he had to figure a way how to solidify that power without uh, people in the rural counties and distant towns um, revolting or stopping paying taxes and, and all of this. And so he set up a system of small little government units called satrapies. And over each one, over 120 of them, he set up a different satrap. And these 120 satraps would then uh, report to three key leaders who would then report all of the goings-ons to Darius. Now, Daniel is listed as one of these three main leaders in the empire. But even among the highest three leaders, even though Daniel was one of the three, he was distinguishing himself above the other two. He, he, he was doing such a good job. He was such a, a, a good leader that, that the king saw him and wanted to appoint him over all of Babylon. And that way he could have a secure leader there while taking care of the rest of his expanding empire. With Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, Daniel advanced in government ranking because God gave him extraordinary wisdom and the ability to interpret dreams and visions. But don't miss the point that here, Daniel is distinguished before he does anything awesome. He is distinguished and lifted up above the others because he was really good at his job. Vocation matters. He was a man of integrity, and so he could be trusted by the king. But as so often happens in politics or any work environment, there are those who are jealous and want to bring people down around them. I read recently where a woman was going to a job interview. She was in the waiting room with other people and a, uh, a competitor, someone else who was interv interviewing for that job, slipped a drug in her drink so that when she got in there, she was slurring her speech and made a mess of everything. And this came out in the national news. And it just shows how desperate people are to undermine someone else so that they can rise to the top. Anyway, this group of disgruntled peers try and find some skeletons in Daniel's closet that they can use against him. Think political smear campaign or private eyes trying to dig up dirt on somebody else. But to their dismay, they can't find anything sticky on Daniel. It's not that the Bible's portraying him as perfect, but he is blameless in the sense that he does really well at his job, he has integrity, and he's done nothing illegal or scandalous. Wouldn't it be great if we had politicians who had so much integrity that the only knock on them was that they took breaks to pray three times a day? Believe it or not, that's what Daniel's adversaries have to deal with. He's a religious guy. 
He prays. And so they're going to figure a way how to attack him there. So they go to the king. And the implication is that some key leaders were representing all of the satraps and the three key leaders, including Daniel. And so they lie and they say, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors, they've consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be put into the lion's pit. Now, there are lots of details here we don't have time to cover. Again, Q&A. If you want questions, write them down. But the idea is that a few of the key leaders come to the king under false pretenses, that they are representing a unanimous, agreed-upon idea. And that way that the king can solidify his new kingdom uh, by having people worship through him to be mediated by the king. The idea isn't so much that that people would worship the king, but that they would have to worship their gods and goddesses through the king, invoking his name like, like a high priest or a medium. And this would only last for 30 days. And it was a way of, of kind of gathering the new people he had just conquered to be loyal to him and through him. Now, the king thinks that all the leaders, including Daniel, are in favor of this new idea. And so he thinks, hey, this has got to be a great political move, and he agrees to it. It's only after the fact that Daniel finds out about it. Now, what is he to do? On the one hand, Daniel could assimilate, and he could go with the flow for 30 days and preserve himself. But to do that, he'd have to deny his fundamental relationship with God. He could also protest by going to the king's court to pray in the open, in open defiance to the king. But instead, Daniel does what he'd always done. He goes into his inner room and he prays three times a day, every day. Daniel knows that the most important th uh, thing in his life is his relationship with God. It's the source of his life. It's the source of his joy. It is the source of his success. Praying seems as natural to Daniel as breathing. And it's no accident that God typically works in and through people who seek him. When God first spoke to Samuel, it was in the middle of the temple where, where he was sleeping by the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Peter and John heal a man uh, at the temple when they're on their way to pray in their daily prayers. Paul delivers a girl who's enslaved both by a demon and by human slave masters while he's on his way to pray. Jesus makes some of the biggest decisions in his ministry after praying all night to the Father. This isn't to shame us, but it's to encourage us. At our core, we are made to relate to God, made to abide in him, to trust him, to draw our life from him. Now, when I preached through Daniel 1, I made the point that Daniel was just a youth at that time, probably in his late teens, and I called on you, youth out there, kids out there, uh, that when we follow God, no matter how young we are, we can change the world. He works in and through youth right now, not waiting for something special to happen, a certain age of accountability. But now I want to pause and recognize that in this chapter, Daniel is in his 80s. I mean, he's officially old. He is in the fourth quarter of his life, and he's still on his knees praying to God. 
he's still a contributor and a vital part of his community. So to all of you entering the fourth quarter of your life, we need you. We need the models of faithfulness to God who continue to invest in our lives and in the lives of the community. We need each other, don't we? And in God's goodness, he will continue to work in and through us no matter what our age. So we see that Daniel's faithful. He doesn't openly defy the king, but neither does he shy away. In the privacy of his own room, he prays, and it is there with great effort because ancient windows were often high off the ground. It's there that his conspirators spy on him. They run to the king, and after reminding him of the unbreakable nature of the Persian oath, they reveal that Daniel has broken the law and must suffer the consequences. Now, the king is instantly distraught. His reaction is an illustration of human sin. The king, the most powerful man in the world at that time, in all of his power, he's still a slave to his own decisions. He cannot break his own command, and so his command now has power over him. Isn't that what it is to be human? We so often think that we're the ones making decisions, but so often our decisions and our choices become our masters. We get stuck with our choices. The words we say can be explained, but we can never undo the hurt that we cause to someone else. The substances we think will give us short-term pleasure can end up enslaving us. The choices to lie or deceive to save a little face or to make someone else feel better become a way of life such that we end up shoring up our deceptions instead of living fully in the light of the truth. Righteous anger that we feel can quickly turn us into angry people who hurt other people. And so it goes. Humans are ultimately unable to save. Even the most powerful man in the world in the story cannot undo what he started. But thankfully, the story's not over. Grieved, the king orders Daniel into the pit of lions. But that night he tosses and turns. He's unable to sleep and he's regretting the decision. Isn't that something we can all relate to? But in the light of the new day, he hurries to the pit. Would he find a tomb or an empty tomb? And to his surprise and delight, Daniel has persevered. He's, he's been preserved. Like the three friends in the fiery furnace, God has intervened and rescued Daniel. Daniel declares his innocence to the king, and before, uh, before God, he, he's done nothing illegal against the king, and he's been faithful to God. And the fact that he has um, defeated certain death has proved his innocence in the eye of any ancient person who had heard the story or read this story. That's just how people thought. But the story's not over. You see, in Aramaic, the word that means accuse, which is, you have to say it the guttural way, Chalu, it's the form of this noun, keratz. Now, none of that really matters. Just listen to what I'm saying here. Literally, those words mean to eat the pieces of, okay? So there's a major literary pun here. Those who accused Daniel, those who sought to eat him up through false accusations, are now devoured. They're eaten up by the lions. 
And the story reminds me a lot of the book of Esther, where Haman um, was trying to frame Mordecai, but he ends up hanging on the gallows that he designed to hang Mordecai on. God has vindicated his servant Daniel. Where the limits of humans to save are most prominent, God's ability to save is all the more powerful and obvious and stark. Who can we count on? The living God. Daniel is faithful in trusting God's faithfulness. But let's face it, you and I, we are not as faithful as Daniel, at least as not as Daniel's portrayed in these stories. The book of Daniel is meant to encourage us, not so much to be like Daniel, which almost seems impossible, and it's not encouraging us to trust in Daniel and his good deeds, but it's meant for us to learn to trust in the God that Daniel trusts in. Believe it or not, you and I have more hope for the future than even Daniel had. Because, of course, this story points to something much, much bigger. The rescue of Daniel from the pit of lions points to the rescue of the world through Jesus the Christ. Let's just look at a few similarities. Daniel drew his life and ability from his close relationship with God. He was faithful and obedient to God. Well, Jesus was regularly in prayer and on multiple occasions stated that he only did what he saw the Father doing. He was faithful and obedient to God. Now, while the world powers could find no legal wrong in Daniel, they conspired against him with false charges. And similarly, while the world powers could find no legal wrong in Jesus, they conspired against him on false charges. In the case of Daniel, the king believed him to be innocent, but he was too weak to save him. He was powerless to save Daniel. And in the case of Jesus, Pontius Pilate believed him to be innocent, but was too weak under peer pressure to reverse the order. Daniel was put into the pit of death, sealed with the stone over the opening, and verified with the seal of the king, so that no one could tamper with it. Jesus was laid in the tomb, sealed with the stone, and guarded by Roman soldiers, so that no one could tamper with it. Daniel emerges from the death pit without a scratch, and is vindicated by God. His story encourages us to trust God as the one we can count on. Jesus was not spared from death. He was whipped and bloodied and pierced through for our transgressions, and he was dead for days. But he emerged from the tomb in a resurrected body, vindicated by God over all the darkness and death itself, and it is Jesus who we can count on. Because Jesus defeated death, we who trust in him need not fear Pandemics, world powers, politicians, nor policies, none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Jesus the Christ. And that is very good news.